If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I like to think about what was going through Joe D'Angelo's mind the moment everything finally caught up with him on April 24, 2018. He was 72 years old, had a decent house in the Citrus Heights neighborhood of Greater Sacramento. He just put a roast in the oven. It was a good day in California. But as he stepped outside, he was swarmed by police, guns drawn. He had to know right away that this was the end of his life, or at least anything that could be called a life. As he felt the cuffs tighten around his wrists, he had to know this would be the last time he'd feel the vastness of the world before being confined behind concrete and fencing forever. Thirteen murders, at least fifty rapes. Only he knows for sure how many lives he destroyed. Strike that. I bet he's forgotten about some by now. Anyway, it was over, his life, and he knew it. But what was he thinking right then? Was he thinking about his victims? The future? The roast he would never get to eat? Did he have an appointment set up at the dentist or the doctor in a couple days? Dry cleaning to pick up? What happens to all those loose ends when you go away for good? I read a story on Reddit that was supposedly posted by a friend of one of the arresting officers. It was on Reddit, though, so take it with a huge grain of salt. But what D'Angelo supposedly said during his arrest was, but I lived a good life. I pushed him out. Think on that as you go to bed tonight. I hope, I really hope what D'Angelo thought at that moment was, how in the fuck did they ever figure it out? D'Angelo was no dummy. He quit killing in 1986, the year everyone started talking about DNA and how it could be used to convict somebody. The first case that used DNA to get a conviction in a criminal case happened in 1987. D'Angelo had been a cop, and so he also knew that the only way DNA was useful was if they had something to match it to. 
If police found DNA at a crime scene, they had to enter the genetic markers found on that DNA into a system called CODIS. So if he stayed out of trouble and kept his DNA out of CODIS, they would never catch him because they would have nothing to match the samples to. And so we quit killing, and he stayed out of trouble. So seriously, what the fuck? That's what I hope he was thinking. They caught the bastard because science took a giant leap forward last year. A couple women from California figured out a new way to use DNA to catch bad guys. And eventually the police took them seriously. Now, D'Angelo is behind bars and cold cases are being solved almost daily because the police are using familial DNA and genealogy to trace genetic breadcrumbs back to their suspects. This science is so new, we're still debating the ethics of it. The whole thing could crumble at any moment. In fact, the entire system relies on a single website run by an 80-year-old man who lives in Florida. It's a house of cards, and if we're not careful, we'll lose this important new tool before all the bad guys can be rounded up. This is The Philosophy of Crime, and I'm your host, James Renner. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I do a little work sometimes for the U.S. Marshal's office in Cleveland. When they have a cold case that needs some fresh tips, they'll send me a scoop and I'll post it on the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit ahead of local news outlets. There's this really cool unsolved bank heist from the 60s that I've posted about before. This kid, Ted Conrad, he worked as a bank teller downtown and on the day we went to the moon in 1969, he walked out of his job with over $200,000 in cash stuffed into a brown paper bag and disappeared. I think I might have found Conrad, by the way. I think Anthony Bourdain bumped into him in Hawaii in an old episode of No Reservations, but I haven't been able to prove it. If I ever make the big bucks, I'll go there and find out for sure. The case I've helped with the most, though, is this unsolved mystery of Joseph Newton Chandler, a rare, unsolved suicide. This happened back in 2002 in Eastlake, Ohio, which is a blue-collar suburb of Cleveland. There was this old man who called himself Joe Chandler, and he lived in an efficiency apartment, little more than a living space, kitchen, and bedroom. He had worked as a draftsman for Lubrizol, a chemical company, in the 80s and 90s. He'd earned a reputation as an eccentric while working there. He liked to listen to the sound of static while he worked. One time, he drove all the way to Maine to shop at L.L. Bean, 
but the parking lot was full, so he turned around and drove all the way back home. In 2002, he was living as a hermit in that efficiency, and one day he stood in front of his bathroom mirror and shot himself in the face. By the time anybody found him, his body had decomposed in the summer heat. Police looked into it and found that he'd recently been diagnosed with cancer and figured that was the likely motive. The case would not have attracted any more attention if not for the fact that the dead man left behind $82,000 in a bank account. A probate judge assigned an old co-worker as executor of the estate, and naturally the man's first move was to find out if Chandler had any living family. This is where my friend Mike Lewis comes in. Lewis runs a private eye company called Confidential Investigations. Lewis was hired to find Chandler's remaining heirs. He used the man's birth certificate to track down a sibling, a sister, still living. She was surprised to get the phone call, and she had some news for the detective. Her brother had died in a tragic car accident when he was just eight years old, in 1945. The man who committed suicide in Eastlake was not the real Joseph Newton Chandler. And that's how a simple suicide became a criminal investigation. Who was this strange man who'd lived in Cleveland for 30 years? Where had he come from? Why had he changed his name? What terrible crime was he running from? Elliot and the U.S. Marshals inherited the case in 2014, and for a while, Elliot wondered if the man who called himself Joe Chandler might be one of the men who escaped Alcatraz in 1962. He dug into the man's background as best he could. A search of hospital records uncovered an incident in 1989 where the man had gone to the emergency room with lacerations on his penis. He claimed he'd gotten hurt while having sex with a vacuum cleaner. That's the tidbit I got to publish online. It brought new attention to the case on Reddit, and several people posted links to stories about fugitives that matched the man's description and age. But eventually, the case grew cold again. In early 2018, I noticed that a name kept popping up in articles about cold cases being solved. Colleen Fitzpatrick. I first saw that name in relation to the Lori Erica Ruff case, which was similar in a lot of ways to Joseph Newton Chandler. By appearance, Lori seemed like your typical middle-aged woman from Texas. She had a college degree in business administration. She married into a well-known family, had a kid, looked like a soccer mom. But when the marriage fell apart, she committed suicide in her in-law's driveway. She shot herself. Her family searched her bedroom looking for some explanation and found a lockbox. Inside the lockbox was evidence that she was not really Lori Erica Ruff, but had changed her name and run away from some unknown past. This Colleen Fitzpatrick, whom the papers identified as a former NASA contractor, figured out who she was in a clever way. She got Lori's daughter and her ex-husband's DNA profiles. Then a computer program filtered out the part of the daughter's genetic profile that matched the father, and what remained was assumed to be from the woman who called herself Lori Ruff. Fitzpatrick and her team then used that info to discover a long-lost relative of the dead woman on a genealogy website. From there, all they had to do was trace back that family tree to find out who was missing. And that is how they learned 
The woman's real name was Kimberly McLean, a girl who had run away from her family in 1986 at the age of 18. In May 2018, I saw Colleen's name again when her nonprofit organization, the DNA Doe Project, solved the Lyle Stevick case. Stevick was the name a young man gave to the clerk at a motel in Washington State when he checked in on Friday, September 14, 2001. He left a simple note that read, Suicide, then hung himself in the closet with his belt. He left no identification, and when police tried to track down that name, Lyle Stevick, they discovered it had come from a Joyce Carol Oates novel. Conspiracy theorists wondered if the man had killed himself because he was part of the plot to bring down the towers on 9-11. Fitzpatrick and her team were able to match the dead man's genetic profile to distant relatives in New Mexico and Idaho. His name is now known to police, but his family has requested that he remain anonymous to the media for obvious reasons. I wondered about Fitzpatrick. She wasn't a detective. And here she was, solving the most unsolvable cases, not with old-fashioned police work, but by using genealogy. Who was she? How was she doing this? I could sense even then that she was about to change the world. And look, I like hyperbole. I'm a writer. I love to exaggerate. But that's the damn truth. Colleen and her group were changing the world, and people were beginning to realize it. I reached out to her through email and set up an interview. I was thinking of writing a long-form piece of journalism, my first in several years, and her story was perfect. I decided to fly out to Southern California to meet her in person. She lives about an hour outside LA. My flight was scheduled to depart from Cleveland on June 21st, but a couple days before the trip, Colleen called me. I can't make it, she said. Can we reschedule? It's really too late, I told her. I asked her what was so important that she'd have to miss our interview, but she wouldn't tell me. She couldn't say. She wasn't allowed to say. The day before I left, I got another call. This time it was my old friend, U.S. Marshal Pete Elliott. What are you doing tomorrow? He asked. I'm flying to L.A., I said. Maybe you should reschedule that and come to the federal courthouse. I'm holding a press conference tomorrow and you're going to want to be there. I told him there was no way I could change my flight. I knew by then that he'd solved a case, but he wouldn't tell me which one. I thought it might even be the Amy Mihalovic case, which I'd worked on for years. I landed in L.A. the next morning, and as soon as the wheels hit the tarmac, I switched my phone off airline mode, and my cell buzzed with several texts. Elliot had just announced that Joseph Newton Chandler's identity had been found, and the people who figured it out were at the press conference with him. Colleen Fitzpatrick, and her friend, Margaret Press. That's my luck. Anyway, here's how they did it. Elliot had seen Colleen's name in the papers, too, and he realized his case might be solved using forensic genealogy. He had DNA from the man who called himself Joseph Newton Chandler. The hospital had taken a tissue sample when he'd gone in for that cancer diagnosis. But it was old. The sample went to a lab and the lab was able to tease out just a little of his Y-DNA profile. See, DNA is made of these four little building blocks called nucleotides. Remember those A-G-T-C bases you learned in grade school? That's what we're talking about. 
What you might not have learned is that everybody has sections of their DNA that repeat. It looks like a little pattern in the chaos of the rest of the genetic code. These are called STRs, for short tandem repeats. The lab looked at 17 markers from the Y-DNA portion of the sample they were given. Y-DNA is very important to genealogists. Each of us has 23 pairs of chromosomes, a mix of genetic information from our parents. But that 23rd pair is either two X-shaped chromosomes for girls or an X and Y-shaped chromosome for boys. That Y-shaped chromosome is passed down from father to son, just like a surname. So if you can match markers from Y-DNA profiles, you can likely trace that sample to the last name of the person you're looking for. So Elliot sent that lab data to Colleen, and that's how she figured out the dead man's real last name may have been Nicholas, because those 17 data points match to a profile on a genealogical website that was part of a Nicholas family tree that stretched back to colonial days. But then the trail went cold again for a year. In the meantime, forensic genealogists were getting really good at using a different sort of test to reunite adoptees with their biological families. Instead of Y-DNA searches, these people were searching for matches using autosomal DNA, that is, their entire genome. The process had been too expensive for regular people to afford, but advances in science had driven the price down significantly. Colleen contacted Pete Elliott and told him that she was willing to pay out of her own pocket to have the suspect's tissue tested again. Elliot sent the sample to a new lab for autosomal testing. This was a last-ditch Hail Mary pass. There was only enough tissue left for one more test. It worked. It was a eureka moment, like when Edmund Haley discovered his comet or when Dr. Reese accidentally dropped his chocolate bar in his peanut butter. I'm going to skim over a lot of cool science here. Let me just say that what they were doing was cutting edge. They were attempting things nobody had done before, and only a few people really understood, such as combining separate test results into a better DNA profile. But let's just fast forward a bit. Thanks to autosomal testing, Colleen matched markers from the suspect's DNA to a woman who was part of the Schreiber family tree. This woman had four sons with a man whose last name was Nichols. When they looked into these four sons, they found that three of them had a date of death attached to their names, but the fourth, Robert Ivan Nichols, did not. One of their volunteer helpers noticed that Robert Nichols once lived at 1823 Center Street in New Albany, Indiana. That address was familiar. When the man who called himself Joseph Newton Chandler filled out his rental application for that efficiency in Eastlake, he listed a prior address. 1823 Center Street in Columbus, Ohio. But that address doesn't exist in Columbus. It wasn't a coincidence, said Elliot later. Liars always lie close to home. Robert Ivan Nichols became Joseph Newton Chandler. But why? That's the mystery that remains. All we know for sure is that Nichols was a war hero, having served on the USS Aaron Ward in World War II. But he became disillusioned with the military and the government after he returned home and he burned his uniform. 
His son recalls his father being aloof and angry before he disappeared. Before he changed his name, Nichols lived in Napa County, California in 1965. That's a time and place familiar to anyone who has researched the Zodiac case. Was he Zodiac? Or was he just a paranoid veteran running from ghosts? That's what Elliot wants to know. But for Colleen, the job is done when the dough has a name. I picked Colleen up at the airport when she came back to California, and we went to this restaurant she likes in Cosa Mesa called Daria. I want you to know right up front that I really like this woman. She's just such a unique soul, so excited about everything. She was as excited to tell me about her jacket as she was to tell me about forensic genealogy. It was a Scotty vest, the kind with 42 pockets that can hold laptops and chargers and phones and sandwiches. She grew up in New Orleans, the kind of kid who won state science fairs. In fact, she told me about this experiment she did as a child one year. She made this thing called a Benham disc, this uh, wheel with black stripes. When you spin it, people see different colors. It's an optical illusion and nobody really knows why it works. I liked it so much I helped my kid build one for his science fair project this year. Colleen studied physics at Rice, got her PhD at Duke. She got really good at optics and lasers and worked for Rockwell International, a defense contractor. She was the principal investigator on the light laser project for the space shuttle. After that, she formed her own company, Rice Systems, and bid on contracts with NASA and DARPA. When funding was redirected from one of her projects in 2005, she went to work on a book about her hobby, genealogy. She'd gotten really good at identifying time periods and locations on unlabeled photographs. She could look at a black and white photograph of two sharecroppers and tell you when it was taken based on the width of the cardboard backing. She also liked to help identify Holocaust survivors who had been smuggled out of the German ghettos as babies and given to other families. Many were dying without ever knowing who they really were. Colleen used archival records and DNA profiles to help them track down their relatives. She wrote a book about her new techniques and ideas, and she titled it Forensic Genealogy. So yeah, she wrote the book on it. Basically, what I'm saying is she's always the smartest person in the room. Think of her as the Sherlock Holmes of forensic genealogy, the doctor house of cold cases. And she really got cooking when she found her John Watson or her Wilson, if you prefer. And that would be Margaret Press. She's from California, too, and she writes mystery novels. She studied linguistics at Berkeley, and she can trace back the lineage of a word the same way Colleen can trace back the markers from someone's Y chromosome. A few years ago, Margaret picked up a book by Sue Grafton, Q is for Quarry, which is based on a real-life unsolved murder. In 1969, a young woman's body was found by hunters in a quarry. To this day, nobody knows who she was or who killed her. The case stuck in Margaret's mind like a burr she picked up and couldn't shake. At the time, she was enjoying her work helping adopted kids track down their parents using forensic genetic genealogy, and she wondered if that same process could be used to identify John and Jane Doe's. She contacted the sheriff's office detectives who worked the case, and they realized if they just worked with her, she could solve their case in about two weeks. 
I'm kidding. They totally ignored her. Seriously, picture a detective getting a call from a genealogist 10 years ago. What does a genealogist know about homicide cases? It was like getting a call from a psychic. What Margaret needed was street cred, and Colleen had that. Colleen was already working with detectives on a criminal case in Arizona. She was trying to track down a suspect in a string of murders. Margaret reached out to her to see why people weren't taking DNA from John and Jane Doe's and uploading them into databases the way they were doing with adoptees. But it's not quite that easy, Colleen explained. Samples sent to 23andMe have to be from a living person. Maybe you could find a private lab to run a DNA test on a tissue sample from a Jane Doe, but even then you'd still need a database of other profiles to compare it to. The police have CODIS, which is good for when you have a suspect in a crime who may have committed a felony or, or was forced to give his DNA at some point. But there were no private databases of autosomal DNA big enough to trace down an unidentified dead woman's relatives. This is where Curtis Rogers comes in. He's 80 years old, retired. Once upon a time, he worked in international business, servicing clients like Quaker Oats and Menon. Now his passion is genealogy. Curtis Rogers was a member of the Rogers Surname Project and discovered that he was the third cousin three times removed of Winston Churchill. But every time he wanted to compare his DNA profile to other families to see where he fit in with the great tree of humanity, he had to reach out and contact members of that separate surname project. All the information was out there. It was just very time-consuming to get to. So Rogers built a new website, GEDmatch, to serve as a central clearinghouse for DNA data. And his database dealt in autosomal DNA, the good stuff. It's a place where someone like Margaret really can upload data and have it compared to thousands of other profiles. By the way, Curtis got the idea for GEDmatch from the Mormon Church. They have a thing called GEDcom, which is a specific data format they use to compare DNA profiles within the church offices. Genealogy is big with Mormons because they believe in baptism by proxy. If they can specifically identify a person, even if that person has died, their soul can be saved if a member of the church is baptized in their place. So. I've got that going for me, which is nice. Curtis Rogers built GEDmatch with a man named John Olson, and that single, brilliant little website is what Colleen and Margaret and police officers across the country are using to solve old cases every day. One low-budget website run by an 80-year-old man. That's it. And it could all fall apart tomorrow. In fact, it almost ended the day police caught the Golden State Killer. Detectives in Northern California worked with a forensic genealogist named Barbara Ray Venter, who used GEDmatch to track down relatives of their suspect, and in this way figured out that the serial killer was Joe D'Angelo. Except, nobody told Curtis Rogers. He found out that morning, reading the news on his computer, in bed. I could feel my hair turn gray, he told me. I sat there and just tried to absorb the meaning of what was happening. I looked outside. There were reporters at my door. He considered shutting the whole thing down right then. I was very concerned, he said. Were we violating the privacy of our users? At the same time, here was this killer that made Jack the Ripper look like a choir boy. 
the ethics are very bothersome. He decided to keep Jedmatch open, for now. But the debate about whether or not this familial DNA business is a good thing or not has only just begun. It will have to be regulated at some point in the near future. Some states are already trying, and believe it or not, the Supreme Court has already weighed in on the issue. Perhaps the construction of such a genetic panopticon is wise, said Justice Antonin Scalia, but I doubt that the proud men who wrote the Charter of Our Liberties would have been so eager to open their mouths for royal inspection. A genetic panopticon, Scalia called it. Do you know what a panopticon is? Sounds like a hipster comic book gathering, right? I wish. It's actually a frightening philosophical concept, and it was dreamed up by a guy you should probably know, Jeremy Bentham. Bentham was born in 1747. From the very beginning, he was odd, different from the other kids. He read history books as a toddler, studied Latin when he was three, and was playing Handel sonatas at dinner parties by the time he was seven. When he was 12, his father sent him away to Oxford. There is some evidence to suggest that Bentham was on the autism spectrum, high-functioning Asperger's, and that does make some sense. He was both radically liberal and weirdly authoritative in some ways. On one hand, he was an advocate for the abolition of slavery, as well as animal rights, equality for women, and the decriminalization of homosexuality. He was the founder of utilitarianism, which argues that you can determine that something is right if it benefits more people than it hurts. On the other hand, he invented the damned panopticon. Close your eyes. Wait, unless you're driving. If you're driving, don't close your eyes. If you're listening to this at home or in a coffee shop or something, close your eyes. Picture a circular brick building. Make it big, perfectly round. Now go inside. There's a big, mostly empty space in the middle, and all the walls, all the way up, are made of prison cells. And these prison cells, they go all around, 360 degrees. The cell walls are bars, and the prisoners can see to the center of the building. There in the center of the circle, in its eye, is a little tower, and on top of that tower is a room, and in that room is a man. He can see out to each and every cell, but the inmates can't really see into him because the window is too small, and he's too far away, or maybe the tower has tinted windows. That is a panopticon. In this prison, the inmates always act appropriately because they know they're being monitored at all times by the man in the tower. Or they could be. Since they can't see the man inside, they have to assume that he's watching them just to be safe. And that's the central evil of the whole idea, the threat of constant monitoring. Because once prisoners begin to act as though they're being watched at all times, the warden can quietly remove the man in the tower and his power remains even though nobody is really watching them anymore. Bentham had a major hard-on for this idea. He called it a new mode of obtaining power of mind over mind, and a quantity hitherto without example. It would serve as a mill for grinding rogues honest. He drew up plans to build one of these prisons and presented it to the prime minister, who gave him the funds to start work. Bentham even volunteered to work in the tower 
until the prisoners were thoroughly scared enough at the threat of being watched that he could slip out and do other things. But there was debate over an appropriate site, and the project dragged on and on, and eventually it seemed that the king and parliament might not have really wanted the thing built after all, and were just stringing him along. He demanded they pay him a bazillion dollars for his wasted time, but settled for 23,000 pounds. Poor Bentham never got his panopticon, but other countries were inspired by his idea. Cuba built one in 1926. There were similar prisons in Portugal and France. In fact, the state penitentiary in Illinois was built to be a small-scale panopticon. If Bentham had gotten his way, the panopticon was only the beginning. He believed all privacy should be stripped from humanity. True transparency for everyone would make people behave better toward each other. The world should be like one large gymnasium, he said, where every gesture... Every turn of limb or feature in those whose motions have a visible impact on the general happiness will be noticed and marked down. In 1975, in his book, Discipline and Punish, the French philosopher Michel Foucault took another look at Bentham's panopticon and wrote, and I'm paraphrasing here, Hey dude, what in the actual fuck? Now, Foucault is probably my favorite philosopher, he lived a very big life for as short as it was. He grew up in France, the son of a surgeon. He wanted for nothing. But little Michel, he had a problem with authority. His father, he said, was a real bully, so the young man rebelled. He became a bit of a juvenile delinquent, actually. In college, he studied philosophy under Jean Hippolyte, a professor who inspired a young army of great thinkers like Foucault and Jacques Derrida, Hippolyte believed that good philosophy comes from a better understanding of history. Hippolyte was an existentialist, and so it's really no surprise that Foucault suffered a number of existential crises as a student, often threatening suicide and attempting it on at least one occasion. His father sent him to see a shrink who told the young man that the source of his psychological stress was his homosexuality which was still considered aberrant and criminal behavior. He also did drugs and joined the French Communist Party around this time. He plastered his dorm room with images of people being tortured and developed an interest in BDSM. His biographer in describing Foucault wrote, under one mask, there's always another. In the early 80s, Foucault was lecturing at Berkeley during the day and frequenting the San Francisco bathhouses at night where he engaged in unprotected sex, which was just dumb fucking luck because that became the epicenter of the AIDS epidemic at exactly the same time. He died of the disease in 1984. Bullied by his father, persecuted for his sexuality, Foucault understood the effects of subjugation in a way that Bentham never could. Foucault saw Bentham's panopticon as a horrifying extension of the power of the state over individual thought and freedom. Because the idea of the panopticon can be applied to any institution, schools, factories, mental hospitals. He who is subjected to the field of visibility and who knows it assumes the responsibility for the constraints of power. He becomes the principal of his own subjection, said Foucault. If we know we're being watched, we will 
see ourselves as less than those who watch us. We give them the power to control us. Living in a world where we're constantly being monitored, that's not freedom. That's oppression. What would Foucault say about our current state of affairs? Who needs a panopticon when we have surveillance cameras on every corner? Who needs a panopticon when we can be persecuted for a tweet we sent out at 2 in the morning 10 years ago? What would he say about the police having access to every person's DNA profile? Which, make no mistake, is where we're heading with these databases of genetic information. Personally, I support Jed Match and Curtis Rogers' decision to leave it open, but it's a slippery slope. A scary slippery slope. I'm all for using this technology to hunt down serial killers and rapists, but if the police can use it for that, if they can track down a killer using his distant cousins who did nothing wrong and only submitted their DNA because they wanted to know if they were related to Winston Churchill, if consultants working for the police are doing that, when do they try it with a robbery? When do they try it with petty theft and misdemeanors? The real challenge of forensic genealogy, and where I think the open-source genealogical databases will eventually fail, throwing all these cold cases back into deep freeze, is the Fourth Amendment. You probably learned about the Fourth Amendment in high school civics class, but here's a quick refresher. The Fourth Amendment of the Bill of Rights states the right of the people to be secure in their persons, houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable searches and seizures shall not be violated, and no warrants shall issue but upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons of things to be seized. The Fourth Amendment is why the cops on law and order have to give the bad guy a warrant when they bust into his Upper East Side walk-up looking for a murder weapon. Our founding fathers included the Fourth Amendment in the Bill of Rights because, at the time, we were a bunch of British colonies and the King of England. He had this habit of sending tax collectors into the cities to bust down doors all random-like, looking for anyone who wasn't reporting every taxable item. These were general sweeps, fishing expeditions by a fascist regime, and we didn't want any part of it in our government. The Fourth Amendment means for the police to bust down your door and look for illegal things, they have to first provide evidence or testimony that there is a real reason to think you're doing something illegal, and they have to know what they're looking for. If the item is not listed in the warrant, they generally cannot seize it and use it against you in court. This makes it very difficult for police to harass random citizens. They kind of have to already know you're up to no good. It keeps the police in check. In this country, if you're not doing anything wrong, you shouldn't have to be bothered by the police. But we're in the information age now. We keep personal documents in clouds. We store racy pictures on iPhones. We upload DNA data into genealogical websites. Every time a new technology is invented, Police push the limits of the Fourth Amendment, and eventually, the legality of their seizures are challenged in court. Did you know that your phone calls are being recorded by the government? In some server, deep in a mountain cave or some underground bunker in Utah, that call you made to your side B yesterday, where you two set up a nooner at the local Econo Lodge, that's being stored for a little while. Chances are nobody's really going to listen to it, but... It's being scanned for keywords like jihad and Allah and hijacking. 
The National Security Agency has been doing this for years, and we kind of forget about it and learn to live with it, but when it was first discovered, it became a huge Fourth Amendment issue. In 2013, a United States District Court ruled that the mass collection of data from cell phones probably violates the Fourth Amendment a little, and they ordered the NSA to destroy the records. But all the NSA had to do was argue that destroying those records and ending the program of spying on American citizens could very well lead to another 9-11. There were terrorists out there, and they might attack at any time. They also argued that our text and messages weren't really owned by us anyway, but were the property of the telephone companies. A district court said that sounded cool. I'm unaware, though, of any terrorist that has been caught using the data gathered by the NSA, and they continue to collect and monitor the data that comes through our phones. Now, pretend we're not talking about texts, but the markers on your DNA. That's the code that makes you, you. Do you own it? Or by giving it to 23andMe, do you give up an expectation of privacy? Jedmatch is open, wide open. Do you think the NSA doesn't have their fingers in that cookie jar? Antonin Scalia warned against allowing the government access to our DNA profiles when he called it a genetic panopticon. And that was fucking weird. You know why? Because Scalia was a real asshole. We're talking a grade-A bastard. He was a staunch conservative, and he used that time on that bench to push us back to the Dark Ages as fast as he could, arguing against the rights of women to have an abortion, calling for his colleagues to reverse Roe v. Wade. He liked to strike down laws that protected the rights of African Americans and homosexuals. He was against gay marriage. But when he argued against open DNA collection, he broke ranks and sided with the liberals. The other votes were Ginsburg and Sotomayor and Kagan. You have to ask yourself, why? Why did that issue suddenly cause him to become empathetic? Did he have something to hide? I don't want to get too conspiratorial here, but I've often wondered what Scalia was up to at that ranch where he died suddenly in 2016. This was at Cibolo Creek Ranch in Shafter, Texas. It's an exclusive resort where rich guys go to hunt quail and, and who knows what. Scalia was found dead in his room in the morning, a pillow over his head. The local medical examiner said Scalia had died of natural causes. No autopsy was ordered. This did not pass the smell test for Dr. Judy Melanick, a forensic pathologist, who talked about it at length on CNN. Whenever someone is dead in bed at a private residence with a pillow over his head... There is the possibility that that death was not a natural one, she said. She points out that Scalia had underlying medical conditions, but he did not have a terminal illness. He was not expected to die in his sleep. Sudden death while sleeping, she said, could be the result of any of several different causes, some natural and some accidental. An accidental overdose can cause this, for instance. Her point was that clearly an autopsy should have been ordered if only to keep conspiracy theorists from having a field day with it. Also, there was a pillow over his head. But that question, was Scalia hiding something? That's not even a question I should be asking in a country where you're innocent until proven guilty, but I'm human and I wonder. The Fourth Amendment is there to protect innocent people from police who wonder like I do, with no evidence to back it up. It's why we should know for sure what people are up to 
when they use GEDmatch for familial DNA searches. We need to know what their motives are. Are they working for the NSA? Are they connected to parts of the government that shouldn't be accessing that info? There is one private company I know that uses GEDmatch, and you've probably heard of them. It's called Parabon Nanolabs. So it came as a real shock to me when I discovered that Parabon Nanolabs is funded in part by the Department of Defense and run by a guy who designed software for the CIA. In the last year, work done by Parabon Nanolabs using forensic genealogy has solved some of the country's most heinous unsolved crimes. The 1992 murder of Christy Maroc, a schoolteacher from Pennsylvania. The 1986 murder of 12-year-old Michelle Welch from Tacoma, Washington. They helped solve the 1988 April Tinsley cold case. They put away serial rapists. Just last week, Florida police credited Parabon's genetic genealogy team for the identification of a man who raped a girl in Hernando County in 1983. They've done a lot of good, and in some ways, Parabon has become synonymous with new DNA techniques. Parabon Nanolabs was founded in 2008 by Michael Norton, a chemistry professor at Marshall University, Christopher Dwyer, a professor at Duke who is an expert in nanoscience, and Dr. Stephen Armentrout, a computer scientist. Armentrout is the soul of Parabon Nanolabs, the guy everyone wants to talk to, including me. It took a while to get him on the phone, but when I did, I could hear real excitement in his voice for the possibilities the future holds for DNA and criminal investigations. Armin Trout's talent, the key to his business, is how he makes sense of large data sets. Any collection of data that people want to make sense of, really. Neural modeling, investment forecasting, and that's what he did for the CIA. He designed and developed computational algorithms that they could use to search through large databases of stored images. Whose pictures were these? What were they looking for? I don't know. But Armin Trout helped them use it. It seemed to me that the thing Armin Trout was most proud of was something his company developed called Snapshot. It's a DNA phenotyping technique. A phenotype is the appearance an organism has, its outward characteristics and behaviors. Snapshot takes a suspect's DNA and looks for the specific genes responsible for eye color, hair color, and face shape and then generates a composite sketch of the person they're looking for. It costs about $3,600 a pop. They used it in the April Tinsley case, and North Carolina police felt a snapshot composite helped them catch murderer Jose Alvarez Jr. Every time a police department gets a snapshot from Parabon Nanolabs, it gets great press coverage. The composites are visual and colorful, so it can run in the paper and on TV, and the company gets great free advertising. But genetic scientists and the New York Times are calling shenanigans. Benedict Halgrimson, the head of cell biology and anatomy at the University of Calgary, called Snapshot science fiction in an interview with the Times. Not enough is known yet about the relationship between genes and facial features. Scientists also noted how Parabon will not publish their methods in peer-reviewed journals which could validate the process and increase their sales if it works as promised. The Times had one of their reporters submit DNA for phenotyping and got back a composite. 
None of his 50 colleagues recognized him from that composite. Right now, Snapshot seems to be little more than an expensive, educated guess that could cast suspicion on innocent people. Robert Perry, legislative director for the New York Civil Liberties Union, warned the Times that using Snapshot will place actual people, innocent of wrongdoing, under criminal suspicion without any basis in fact or science. Last year, Parabon Nanolabs hired C.C. Moore to head up their genetic genealogy department. C.C. Moore is a well-known face in true crime circles. She founded the popular Facebook group DNA Detectives and has appeared as a guest to discuss forensic genealogy on The Dr. Oz Show, The Today Show, and Good Morning America. She makes a good guest. She's extremely photogenic with long golden curls, and she speaks in great sound bites. But here's the thing about Cece. She has little in the way of academic credentials. In fact, she never finished her bachelor's degree. Before she got into genealogy, she was a casting director in Hollywood. At first glance, it appears she's way out of her element in a field where other genealogists hold multiple PhDs. And yet, no one can claim she's not good at what she does. Cece has solved hundreds of cases, putting killers behind bars and reuniting adoptees with their biological parents. She's done a lot of good. And that's the exciting thing about this field of forensic genealogy. It's so new, it doesn't fucking matter who you are, as long as you're good at it. And Cece's one of the best. The reason you're hearing so much about Parabon, by the way, is that they were perfectly poised to take advantage of the forensic genealogy zeitgeist. Remember that Snapshot initiative? Well, because of Snapshot, Parabon Nanolabs was already sitting on hundreds of profiles of unknown murderers. All they had to do was send a letter back to their client, back to that police department in Decatur or Ypsilanti, and explain that for an extra nominal fee, they could have a forensic genealogist use that data to match their suspect to distant family members in GEDmatch. Smart move. And why should we begrudge a capitalist? Armin Trout, for his part, practices what he preaches. He submitted his own DNA data to GEDmatch. He's not afraid of how it might be used in the future and does not believe the field of familial DNA should be regulated at all. Recently, Parabon Nanolabs was awarded a new contract by the Department of Defense. This project, codenamed Keystone, will be a new software platform that can be used to analyze DNA evidence. Specifically, it will make familial DNA searches easier for untrained analysts. When I asked him straight up whether the Department of Defense uses his company and public genetic databases to search for and identify possible domestic terrorists, he said, I can't talk about that. Now, I'm going to defend Armin Trout's response here, and I can't believe that I am, because I'm a fierce liberal at heart. But maybe our government really should be dipping their fingers in our DNA databases. You know why? Because other countries have already started, and we're already playing catch-up. Behind the scenes, the forensic genealogist I've spoken to all come around to the same threat on the edge of the horizon. China. China is already ahead of the curve on familial DNA technology. They can take their citizens' DNA and build their own databases because there's no checks and balances over there. 
There is growing concern about what this means for our undercover agents in the field. Our spies may be undercover, but unlike passports and paperwork, DNA doesn't lie. A decent genealogist could enter their data into GEDmatch and find out who that agent's family is back in the States, and in that way, find out their true identity. And what will China do when they catch our spies? That's called leverage. Pandora's box is open. Familial DNA is here to stay. So what do we do with it? We have two choices. We can draw up our own guidelines immediately, or we can do nothing and let the government set the rules first. It may already be too late. Two weeks into the new year, Maryland's legislature began to consider a new bill that would restrict police from using familial DNA searches in sites like GEDmatch and Family Tree DNA. Personally, I'd like to see a nonprofit take over GEDmatch, a new group made up of forensic genealogists, civil liberties attorneys, victims' advocates, professors, and prosecutors, people from both sides of the aisle, nonpartisan. Give them control of the database and have the police petition them for access. This would ensure that the database would only be used for murders and rapes and would limit access by the NSA and DOD. The board would be public and transparent and elected by members. Unfortunately, I feel like we're already too late. Hopefully, though, cool heads will prevail and the coldest cases can still be solved. Finally, for full transparency, I should tell you that I'm currently developing a series for television about forensic genealogy for which Colleen and Margaret and other genealogists will hopefully consult. It's an idea ripe for drama. We have entered a brave new world, one where the definitions of identity and family are being rewritten every time someone tests their DNA. I hope to share some exciting stories soon. If you're interested in helping solve John and Jane Doe cases, please consider contributing to the DNA Doe Project by visiting dnadoproject.org. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit jamesrenner.com, where you can find links to the other stuff I do, including virtual reality journalism. I also currently host Lake Erie's Coldest Cases for Discovery ID, and you can find every episode on idgo.com. My latest novel, Muse, will be published in May. You can order Muse and my other books online or anywhere books are sold. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Check out his other creation, Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, available to order on Amazon or also Wood If. Com. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everyone took the time to make good friends with their neighbors, we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better. You're going to have a bad day. Close your eyes. You're going to have a bad day. I'm human.
extremely photogenic, hair color, eye color, close your eyes, I'm human, extremely photogenic, eye color, hair color, you're gonna have a bad day. Dick, dick, you're gonna have a bad day. Dick, 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 you're gonna have a bad day. Dick, 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 you're gonna have a bad day. Dick, 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 Eye color, hair color, eye color, hair color, eye color, extremely photogenic, extremely photogenic, extremely photogenic, extremely photogenic, but, 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 but,